I got a question for you. Have, have you ever had something happen to you that was just totally unjust? Like maybe, maybe somebody did something to you and they completely got away with it. And you're like, are you serious? Where's the justice in this? I had, I had something uh, that just really pulled that out of me this past week on Monday. Happened, happened just, just down the street. Uh, it was right there across the, it actually didn't happen to me. It happened to my wife and a couple of my daughters. They were, they were involved in a hit and run just down the street. So I'm, I'm, I'm up there. I have a little study area, and I'm working on my sermon on Monday, and I get a frantic call from one of my daughters who says, Daddy, we've just been hit. And, uh, and while I'm talking, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Is anybody hurt? And then while I'm talking, I, I hear her say, he's driving off, he's driving off, he's driving off. And sure enough, God drove off. In fact, I got to see the video camera of it because the Micho Akana had a video camera right there at the intersection. And the police officer showed up because they called 911, got to see what happened. And it was, it was the craziest thing. So my wife is right here on the right lane, just driving normal. I mean, we're in a hybrid. You can't go that fast anyway. So just kind of slowly going. And then there's another car driving erratically and literally pulls in front to turn right. And of course, clips my wife in their car and Praise God, it was my wife driving because she was, she was sound enough to stay where she was at, get the people out. And you see that car spin out. You see the guy get up, and apparently he was drunk or high. I don't really know, but he staggers over toward the car, says something, and you see him get back in the car and drive off. And that's what was happening when my daughter called me. Officer shows up, and they, they had, one of my daughters had the most descriptive uh, message to give to the officer, eye color, what he was wearing. I mean, just like everything in there. They had his license plate, everything. So I'm like, all right, we're going to get this guy. And the officer said, I ran the plates and they're canceled plates. Um, doesn't fit the car that you see on the video. And uh, we couldn't identify him through the video. So I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. It's a hit and run. Here's your paperwork to take to your insurance. I'm sorry. And I, I wasn't frustrated with the officer, but man, I was so frustrated with that person. There's a side I'm going, are you serious? That's it. Like, he, he slams into my, my wife's car, praise God they're okay, drives off and there's nothing. It's going to be scot-free. And I got to be honest with you, nothing would make me happier than to see that man in a courtroom with a judge go guilty. Bam, we saw the evidence. Here are your charges. Like, I, I, want, I want justice for what happened when someone endangered my wife and kids. I want justice. By the way, I'm not the only person who wants justice. Every one of us in this room is hardwired for justice. Has it ever happened before where like you're driving and some car just zooms past you and you're like, well, where are the cops now? That car goes. There was one time I was driving and this car zoomed past me and then a cop pulled out, pulled him over. I'm like, yeah, as I'm driving by because of justice. And you know, y'all the same way. Y'all be doing the same. You'd be rolling down the window going, yeah, buddy, you just... You would do it because you love justice, and we hate injustice, every one of us. And that's the quality I think the Lord put in, well, I know the Lord put in us, but there's a problem with this quality. Every once in a while, we'll take this mindset, this demand for justice, and look to God and say, I demand you explain yourself, God. I want justice, God. I'm not okay with what you're doing with my life or what you're allowing to happen, God. I'm not okay with these things, God. Why, God? I want justice. And the moment we try to take God to court, we're in a whole heap of trouble. This morning is a story about the Israelites doing that very thing. 
demanding justice from a God who's been nothing but good to them. And we're going to learn a bit about them, but most importantly, we're going to learn about God and how he reacts. It's in Exodus 17. So open up Exodus 17. Those of you who are visiting us for the first time online or in person, we are going through the book of Exodus chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Started last year. We went through 1 through 14, took a break for a few months. Now we're back in it, going from 15 to 24. This morning, we're in in chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 1 in, in a second. But this is the third of three tests that are simultaneous or sequential, I should say, in in a wilderness time. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. The first test happens at Marah where they're thirsty and there's bitter water, and they fail that test. They grumble. They don't trust in God, and God gives them sweet water as Moses throws a log into the water. Second test is in the wilderness of sin. That's what you heard last week from Pastor Gary as he talked about the manna from heaven. They're hungry. They grumble again. They fail the test, and God gives them manna and quail. Now we're in the third test. And this time you're going to see, they don't just fail it, they colossally fail it. It's verses 1 through 7, we're going to read the whole passage. Here's what it says. Exodus 17, 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because they quarrel, the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, when, when you read those seven verses, if you've been tracking along with us in the sermon series, it kind of feels like same song, third verse. You know, it was, they were thirsty, they complained, they were hungry, they complained, now they're thirsty again, they complain again. But this is actually totally different than the other two in their response because it doesn't say they grumbled, it says they quarreled with Moses. That word quarreled in Hebrew, if you were to more literally translate it, it, it means they are filing a formal complaint against God. It's the idea of like, I, I, like a lawsuit, like I'm, I'm taking you to court. You're going to have to explain yourself. I want a legal complaint against God. And you know it's against God and not just Moses, even though it says he quarreled with Moses. It's because Moses responds, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you putting God to the test? In other words, why are you putting God on trial? Now, what I'm about to tell you in this passage is probably something you've never seen before that, like I said earlier, I don't think you'll ever read this passage the same again. What you are witnessing is a court case between God and his people that has a judge in all. This is a whole court scene because God knew that the, the nation of Israel was trying to bring a formal complaint against them. And he says, if you want to bring a formal complaint, I'll let you. And the formal complaint begins in a full courtroom scene in verses 5 and the first part of 6. I want you to go back to those verses. I want you to see what's going on here because it's incredible. 17.5. says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Okay, so, so what you have here now is a scene taking place where God says, Moses, I want you to pass before the people, but I want you to hold the staff, and it says, with which you struck the Nile. 
Now, that detail is very important because what God is distinguishing here is Moses' job. He's the judge in this court scene. That staff with which he struck the Nile, if you remember, was the first of ten plagues. When they brought judgment on Egypt, God said to Moses, take the staff, strike the Nile River, and when you strike it, it's going to turn to blood. And thus commences the judgment upon Egypt. So that staff was a staff of judgment. Why he says, the very staff with which you struck the Nile. And he says, I want you to pass before the people. This is now making it a public trial, and he's saying, I want you to grab your staff, and I want you to go up and sit on the judge's bench. Moses, you are the judge. It's in front of everybody. And then he says, I want you to grab elders from among the people. Now, what this is, is putting on one side of Moses, who's the judge, the elders who represent the nation of Israel, and they're now the prosecution. They're bringing formal complaints against God, who is on the other side. If you notice, it said in verse 6, God says, and I will stand at the rock of Horeb. So here's God standing on the rock at Horeb. You have, he's the defendant. You have the elders who represent the people of God. They're the prosecution. You got Moses over here in the middle on his bench with his staff to judge. And now the formal complaint comes. And the prosecution, those elders bring three formal complaints against God. They complain that he did not he didn't, provide, he didn't have provision, protection, and presence. Those are the three. I'll go with them one by one. First complaint, they say is, God, I don't see your provision. Where's your provision? There's no water for us to drink again, God. You're failing on your job. You said you would provide for us, God, and you're not doing. They have filed a formal complaint. Our God is no longer giving us his provision. The second complaint was his protection. They're saying, God, you have failed to protect us. You told us you would protect us, but here we are now, and you're not watching out for our good. In fact, the prosecution brings an offense, a capital offense claim upon them, saying, did you bring us out here to kill us, our children, even our animals? Obviously, you're not protecting us. This is a formal complaint against God. No provision, no protection, and then the third complaint, no presence. If you look back at verse 7, it says they quarreled against God and they tested him saying, is God among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? They're saying, God, we don't see your presence. We don't sense your presence. And we're bringing our complaint. You said you would go with us and we don't see you, God. So this is a formal courtroom with Moses as judge. And now the prosecution has brought three formal complaints. And there is God on the Mount of Horeb receiving these complaints. Now you right now need to stop and consider how outlandish these three complaints are, given the context of the book of Exodus. The first complaint is no provision. God, we complain, you're not providing for us. They're complaining about a lack of provision when the crumbs of the manna are still on their face. I mean, they, they, they are eating literal bread from heaven. They're like, God, I cannot, I cannot believe you wouldn't provide for us. They're eating manna from heaven every morning, every Sabbath, they get a double portion of it. And they're saying, no, our God doesn't provide for us. There's a side, you just want to slap them across the face, go, what is wrong with you people? Then the next one, no, our God's not protecting us. Why isn't our God watching out for us? Do you remember what happened a few weeks before this? Not, not only did God part a Red Sea so they could walk through it, but now they're on the other side. They're scared to death because they see the Egyptian army coming after them. And God smites the whole Egyptian army by crashing the waves upon them. He protects them to the uttermost. And before that, if you remember, were 10 plagues that happened sequentially. Each one of them was a distinguishing between Egypt 
and Israel. There'd be darkness in Egypt, there'd be light in Israel. There'd be hell in Egypt, there'd be nothing in Israel. There'd be the death of the firstborn in Egypt, the firstborn in Israel is just fine. He's protecting them again and again and again and again. And they have the audacity to go, well, our God's just not protecting us. But the worst one to me is the third one. And they go, we just want to know, is the Lord among us or not? They ask this question when there's a stinking literal pillar of fire right next to them. There's a cloud right there. Everywhere they go in the wilderness, that cloud is directing. They can see the presence of God in a way that you and I can only dream about. And they go, well, I don't know if God's with us. They have their sunglasses on because there are pillar of fires there. And they go, I don't know if God's with us. And there's a side where you're going, you people, what is wrong with you? Until you stop and look in the mirror and realize we do the exact same thing. How often has it been that we're going through something hard? And we go, yeah, yeah, God, you were faithful six months ago. But what have you done for me lately? Yeah, God, you, you were good to me five years ago when, when you rocked my world and I came to faith in Christ. But it's been real hard, God. I don't know where you're at. It is so easy to look up to God and try to demand justice and forget all the things that he's done. This is what the Israelites are doing. Clear as day, God didn't deserve any of these complaints. So now they're in a formal courtroom. God has set it up. They brought the complaints. Here is God on Horeb, and here's what you expect them to do. All right, Moses, you got the staff, smite them. Get the staff, show that they're to be judged. They're in the wrong. I'm innocent. That's what you would expect. But God in this moment does the most unthinkable thing imaginable. He says, I want you to take the staff of judgment. And I know their excuses are lame and bogus and there's nothing true to them but strike me instead. You notice what it said, right? It says, strike the rock and water will come out. Who's standing on top of the rock? Go back and read verse six. The Lord says, I will stand on the rock at Horeb and then you will strike the rock and water will come out. What does that mean? It means God is saying, judge me instead. I know they don't deserve this. I know that they're complaining and grumbling and all their claims are false. Here I am, I'm totally innocent, but Moses strike me instead because I want them to live. Listen, if you don't know who our father is, that's who our father is. So, so often we have this picture of God, oh, he's so mean, he's just waiting to catch me do wrong. I go to church because I don't want to upset God. I, I make sure that I give money because I don't want to make God angry. He might come against me as if he's mean and cruel. That is not the story the Bible gives us of God. I know there are some of you some of you have had really hard upbringings. Maybe you had a dad who abandoned you. Maybe you had a dad who was just mean, strict, demanding. You could never do enough to please him. It's so easy to take that mindset and project it on God and say, well, that's the way our Father in heaven is too. But I don't want you to try to define God based on your experience. I want you to define it based on the Word of God. And here's who our God is. He sees this grumbly, complaining, quarreling mess, putting God on trial. And even though they do all that, God says, strike me anyway, because I want them to live. That's who our God is. And in case you don't know the correlation between this story and the bigger story, this whole story is just a way for you to understand Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the rock. I want you to know that what's taking place in Exodus 17 is just a foreshadowing so that we could see what would happen over a thousand years later. 
This isn't just some kind of loose allegory. Paul himself said, Jesus Christ is the rock. I'm going to move around in a few passages. It's kind of like a Bible drill. Don't worry about trying to keep up if you can't. But if you can, go to 1 Corinthians 10. I'll have the words up on the screen. I want you to read though. We're going to come back to Exodus 17. But 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul here is clearly talking about the Exodus experience. And listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. When you read this story, he's talking back to Exodus and he's referring to the rock from which they had water and he says, and the rock is Christ. What he's saying is, it was told before you guys were ever even born, Jesus is saying, and, and Paul is saying, before you guys were ever even born, it was foretold to us that there would be a rock who would be struck. And when he struck, you would be healed. Now, here's what's so great about this. It wasn't just Exodus 17. I'm going to go to Isaiah 53. This is 700 years before Jesus was even born. And it's going to talk about the Messiah who would come. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. It says, surely he, talking about the Messiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That word stricken and smitten means struck by God. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. When the rock is struck, that's when healing comes to us. You want to know why? Because when the rock is struck, living water comes out of him. This is the very thing Jesus said would happen. One last passage before we go back to Exodus 17. It's John 7. Here Jesus is talking in verses 37 to the first part of verse 39. Jesus, it says this, and on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Jesus said, if there's anybody thirsty at all, you come to me, the rock, and drink. And you're going to experience the rivers of living water. Jesus is the rock. And the reason we know he was the rock is because he was just as righteous as the Father was back in Exodus 17. You know, the whole key to this thing in Exodus 17 was the fact that the righteous one, the one who was the defendant, clearly was in the right, said, strike me. Moses, I want you to put judgment on me. Because when a righteous man receives undeserved judgment, that's when life comes. This is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. There's an incredible parallel here that I had not seen however many times I've read these stories until I was studying for this passage. It just blew my mind. What Jesus does in the New Testament is fulfills everything that the Israelites did wrong in the Old Testament. So there was a time when Jesus was tested in the wilderness the same way Israel was tested in the wilderness. I'm not going to read it, but it's in Matthew 4 or Luke 4. And God calls Jesus to go out in the wilderness. And it happens for a period of 40 with Jesus, just like it was. It was 40 days for Jesus, like it was 40 years for the Israelites. One day for every year for the Israelites. And Jesus had the same struggles. If you think about <clears throat> what were the things that Israel suffered Lack of food and drink for those times of testing. Well, what did Jesus go without for 40 days? Food and drink. 
You know, I've, I've explained to you already that there were these three sequential tests that took place for Israel in the wilderness. Well, how many tests did Jesus have? Three tests. When Satan comes against him, he's tested three times. Now, the stories are exactly alike until this moment, and then they diverge. Well, what did Israel do with those three tests? They failed and failed and then failed colossally. They grumbled and grumbled and then put the Lord, their God, to the test. Well, what did Jesus do? After going 40 days without food and drink, he never once grumbled. He never once complained. He passed all the tests. In fact, the third test, the one when the Israelites put the Lord to the test, do you know what Jesus answered Satan on the third test? You shall not put your Lord, our God, to the test. He is saying definitively, I will not put God on trial. I trust him. And he perfectly fulfills every one of the tests that Israel failed in. And because of it, he is now perfectly righteous. Also, if you look at the Bible, you'll recognize that he doesn't begin to do his miracles until after this testing. He's proving his righteousness and the spirit is unleashed in him in power because he has obeyed the Father. And when you come to Calvary, on that cross, Jesus says, no one took his life. He willingly went to the cross and said, strike me instead. I know these people right now who were spitting on my face deserve it. I know the ones yelling, crucify me, deserve it. But don't hold their sins against them. Strike me instead. And when a righteous one chooses to be judged, that's when life comes to everybody else who will come and drink. I want you to think about this. Every person in the wilderness that day, the only way they could drink is that they went to that rock and saw it split open, even though they knew he didn't deserve judgment. They had to go to the rock to drink. And it's no different with us. Every single one of us, if we ever want to experience all that God gives us, we have to go to the rock and drink. And we have to say, God, I'm not going to bring my charge against you any longer. I'm not going to claim that you've done wrong. I'm going to humbly come before you and drink because I need you. I, I, I just, I think sometimes we don't recognize how often we test God in our hearts. Here's what I want you to hear. You cannot test God and trust God at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. If you are testing God, you're not trusting him. If you're trusting God, you're not testing him. And God is saying, I want you to see who I am. Through this, this crazy story in Exodus, I want you to see I chose judgment so that you could know one day my son would come and he would choose judgment so that you would trust me and come to the rock and drink and yet so often we don't trust him. So often we put God on trial in our hearts. And I know what you're thinking. You go, I would never do that. I would never put God on trial. Well, let me go ahead and tell you, we do it in very subtle ways. If you've ever been disappointed in God, you're putting God on trial in your heart. God, I thought you were going to do something different. God, I thought, thought you were going to protect me, God. God, I thought you were going to fix my problem. Where were you? I prayed, God. You didn't answer Anytime you say, where were you, God, when? And you feel in whatever it was, you're putting God on trial. Where were you, God, when my spouse left me? Where were you, God, when my, my loved one got sick and died? Where were you? Where were you when I lost my job and I couldn't pay my bills, God? Where were you, God, when this thing happened? Why are you letting, I'm a good person, God. Why are you letting bad stuff happen to me, God? Where are you? We put God on trial in our hearts. Every time we question him, 
Maybe sometimes we put God to the test simply when we don't obey until he proves himself first. All right, God, I know you want me to give and be generous. I'll tithe once you give me that promotion at work. God, I know you want me to go on that mission trip, but you got to work things out in vacation first. When you do that for me, you bless me, then I'll follow you. You know what we're doing? We're putting God to the test. Prove to me why I should obey you. God does not need to prove to us why we should obey him. The cross was proof enough. And now he's just saying, will you trust me? Look, I want to teach you something this morning. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say. I want to teach you the difference between questioning God and taking your questions to God. Those are radically different things. Our human flesh demands justice. We want justice, and sometimes we project it upon God and say, God, I want justice. I want you to explain yourself, and we question God. That is a posture of pride. That's what the Israelites were doing. I demand a verdict. Where's your provision? Where's your protection? Where's your presence? I demand a verdict. They were oozing with pride, and so are we every time we question God. But I want you to notice what Moses did. It was so different. Listen, he still had questions. Make no mistake about it. He goes, these people are about to kill me, God. What am I supposed to do? But who was he talking with? He was talking with God. He took his question to God. Now, this was a posture of humility. He's going, God, I don't know what to do, but I know you do, and so I take it up to you. What do I do? There's a radical difference between questioning God and taking your questions to God. And what I want to challenge you to do this morning is to humble yourself enough to stop questioning God and to take your questions to God. In a moment, we're going to have a time of prayer. You're going to be able to come down front, and some of you are going to need to repent. Some of you are going to need to come down here and bow down on the grounds and say, oh God, forgive me. I confess to you, I've been angry with you. I've been frustrated with you. I've been I've been putting you on trial in my heart, demanding answers that you're not giving me right now, and I just want to confess it, and I repent. Forgive me. Here's the good news. He will always bless a contrite, humble heart. He will always forgive you. He just wants you to come. Some of you, though, are going, okay, I, I just, I got some big things going on in my life, and I don't know what to do. Prayer is an act of humility. So I'm going to invite you in a bit to come down front, There'll be prayer team members down front. You can grab hands with us and let us pray over you. Or you can just bow down and take your knee before the Lord. But this is you saying, God, I can't handle this situation. I don't know what to do. All I know to do is take it to you. I'm bringing my questions and my circumstances to you, God. What do you want me to do, God? I'll do it. Some of you need to take your questions to God and say, God, only you can handle this. I trust you with it. It's an act of faith. I want to encourage you to do it. But before I do that, this is what I've been, I've been praying so hard for this next moment. I believe there are some of you here this morning, and you genuinely want to believe in God. You want to trust him. You want to have faith, but you've been through so much in your life. You've been hurt over and over and over again, and you're going, I don't want to fake it. I just don't trust. I don't trust. Or I don't know how a good God could let this happen to me. I don't know how he could let me endure so much pain and suffering. I want to believe in him. I just need some answers. I just need something. I need him to show me, to bring resolution some way that I know he sees me and cares for me because I just can't believe it otherwise. As hard as I may try. Listen, if that's you, here's what I want you to hear. I've been praying for you. And here's what I've been praying. I've been praying that you would realize you don't need God to answer you. You don't need resolution to your problem. You need to drink deep from the well of Jesus. 
What you need is the presence of God. There's a story in the Bible. I'm not going to read it. Book of Job. You should read it sometime. It's a, it's a horrific story. Painful. The whole story of the book of Job is round after round of him overwhelmed with a question for God. Where is your justice, God? He's got these measly friends that just make it worse and worse and worse. And he gets angrier and angrier as the book goes on. Job does. And he's going, the whole book, God, I know that you're all powerful. God, I know that you're all knowing. But where's your justice? God, why are you letting me suffer? I'm an innocent man. God, I look out and I see, I see kind people being over, overstrung and, and overcome by, by evil, mean, greedy people. And those who are evil get ahead and those who are righteous, they fail. So God, where's your justice in all of this? And at the end of all these chapters, Job has given his vent. He gets to the very end and he's, he says, I want to approach you like a prince. I want to see your signature, God. Answer me. Where's your justice? Then God does answer you have four chapters of God speaking. It's the longest discourse in the Bible continuously of God speaking. And you know what he says? He says, I'm all powerful and I'm all knowing. Do you know what he does not answer? He never once explains his justice. You'd expect at the end of the book for, Mo, for Job to be ticked off. See, that's the problem. I already said you were all knowing. I already said you're all powerful. I want to know your justice, God. But if you've read the end of the book of Job, that is not how he responds. It says he repents in dust and ashes. And he says, because I had only heard about you, but now I've seen you face to face. Job didn't need answers. He thought he did. He didn't need resolution. He thought he did. He needed to meet God face to face. And that's the offer of Jesus. In John 7, when Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's saying, I want you to meet me face to face. Because I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. And rivers of living water will well up inside you and you will be satisfied. It's only when your heart is satisfied that your complaint goes away. So if you're here this morning and you're going, I need answers. I don't know if I can trust him. I want you to do the craziest thing of all. I want you to take a bold leap of faith and say, if this is who my God is, somebody who's willing to be struck for me, even though he's innocent, so that I could live, then I want you to be willing to come to him. And I don't want you to let any excuse keep you back. We're going to have a moment where you can come down and you can let us know that you're ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Every week we have a baptistry on stage and we keep the water ready because we just don't know if somebody this morning is here to say, I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm ready to find the living water. And you'll get to pass through the water as a symbol. The old you dead, a brand new you come to life. But you've got to trust them. It's, it's not hard. The gospel message is simple. I've already walked it through with you. You're broken. I'm broken. We're Israel demanding justice from a holy God when we're the ones who deserve to be struck. But Christ loved you so much, he said, strike me. And Jesus says, if you'll just ask for forgiveness, you'll just come to me, I'll forgive you and I'll put my spirit inside of you and you'll have life. He just says, come to me. And that's my challenge for you. Maybe all you've been going through, all the hardship has been to make you thirsty enough to go to the rock to drink. If you're here and you're thirsty for God, if you're hungry for God, it's time to come to the water and drink. And don't let any excuse keep you from coming. I know some of you are going, ah, Jason, I want to, but you don't know. You don't know my sin. You don't know all the stuff that I've done. 
I know people think I look all shiny on the outside, but I'm broken. My sin is deep. There's no way God would accept me. I want to bring you back to the story of Exodus 17. When God said, strike me so that they can have water, who's the they? It's these grumbling, complaining Israelites who keep putting God to the test. And God says, strike me. I know they don't deserve it, but I want them to live. The whole message of the gospel is Jesus saying, I know they don't deserve it, but Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. I want them to have life. It's time for you to come to your senses and go, I hadn't known what I was doing. I've been walking in sin, but I see it now. I want to come to Jesus because I want life. It's a choice you make. It's a choice you need to make this morning. I want to invite you all to stand up right now. I want to invite pastors and prayer team members to come around the room. And here's what I'm asking. I'm asking you to take a bold step of faith if you're willing to. There's going to be a war going on. I, don't, I shouldn't go. I can't go. I'm inviting you to come. Walk down front and say, I'm ready to have Christ in me. I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus. I want to experience him. I want to be forgiven of all my sins. I want a brand new life. I'm ready. And if you come, let us know. We're going to walk out and we're going to have a chance to counsel with you to make sure you understand the gospel. And if you're ready today, we have a t-shirt that says, Jesus in my place, you can change into. We have shorts you can put on. And you can be baptized before you leave this church today if that's what the Lord is doing in your heart. But you got to come. And maybe you're going today, I need to repent. I've been questioning God in my heart. I've been putting God on trial in my heart. And I need to confess and say, I'm sorry, God. Or maybe you need to just come bring your questions to God. I don't know how to handle this, God. And so I'm bringing it before you in prayer. We're ready to pray with you, whatever you need. This is now an altar and it's open. The Lord is saying, would you respond? I invite you to right now.